Welcome to the next track. A podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. We self-produce the Next Track podcast and want to keep it ad-free, so we rely on contributions from listeners for support. You can help us by making a regular donation via Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash the next track. And thanks. Today, we're very happy to welcome Annick Lafarge. Annick has written a fascinating book called Chasing Chopin, a musical journey across three centuries, four countries, and a half a dozen revolutions. Annick, thank you for joining us. It is a pleasure to be here with both of you. I love your podcast. I've listened to many episodes, and uh, it's just uh, it's a great contribution to thinking about music in the modern, very, very modern world that we live in. So. Thank you. Okay, thank, thank you. you. That was much. episode 226. Tune in next week. No, <laughs> kidding. We, we like when our, our guests uh, say things like that. Now, I have to be frank. I have already interviewed you on a different podcast that I do, which is the Right Now with Scrivener podcast. I'll put a link in the show notes because you've written your book using an app called Scrivener. And I do a podcast about Scrivener. So if anyone wants to hear about how you use Scrivener, you can also check out, you can have a double feature with Annie Clafarge today. Right. We just love this book. You, you wrote a book about Chopin. Instead of writing a book about his life, a biography, you wrote a book about just one of his works, just one. Why did you choose this particular work? Well, the, the work that you're talking about is the, is the work that Everybody knows whether he knows or she knows anything about classical music at all. It's the famous funeral march from his Opus 35 sonata. Bom, 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 bom. When we were kids, we used to run down the hallway in school singing Pray for the Dead. Um, and, I, <laughs> and we all know it from cartoons when we were cartoons. kids as well. It's, that, that, that motif is that powerful, isn't it? Yes, and it's lived on in so many different incarnations. I mean, when I first started... Um, Kind of when it came, I mean, I, I've been thinking about this piece for a long time since I first heard it. Um, I first heard it at the Polish consulate in New York, and Michael Kimmelman, the great um, architecture critic for, critic for the New York Times, who who began his career as a as a concert pianist, he almost became a professional and then became a journalist instead. But Michael played it there, and I I remember hearing it for the first time. I had just started taking piano lessons, and I I heard the beginning chords of the funeral march, and I thought, oh, well, that's where that comes from because I really didn't even know. Um, and then in the middle of the piece, the funeral march kind of comes to a quiet close. He modulates into the related key, which is D-flat major, and there, there follows this absolutely beautiful song-like nocturne um, that is so striking as a contrast to the funeral march. And then he pauses yet again, and the funeral march returns. And so... The funeral march, really, what he was doing was he was doing something much more complicated than we know from the cliche of the funeral march. He was saying something much more, um, much more nuanced about what we think of as as saying goodbye, death, grief, mourning. That it it's bookended by um, there. There's this beautiful, you know, sort of major key piece in the middle of it, and and I found it really striking. And so I started thinking about the piece a lot. I took it. I bought the score. I started playing it. And then I put it down, and then when I went to visit a friend of mine, an author I had worked with as an editor in Chicago, who was dying, um, when I left her and, and went back, I, I was taking a train back to the city, an overnight train, and I stopped at a jazz club. And in the middle of this really jolly, jazzy um, trio, these guys suddenly started improvising on Chopin's Funeral March. I'm like, you know, what is it about this piece that it keeps kind of coming up? And so I, I started Googling and I, and, I, and I became fascinated with the entire story of 
of Chopin's work, the development of the, of the piano, the technology of the times, um, and and just you know his his really um, innovative use of tonalities and and harmonies, and which you see in in so many of his pieces. So that's that's sort of how it it started. Probably should say that the book isn't just about music. I mean. You can never have heard of Frederick Chopin. Pick this book up and walk away saying, "I just learned a ton of stuff," because it's one of those book. It's one of those books where ostensibly it's about one subject, but really it's about all the other stuff around the main subject. I mean, I've one of my favorite periods of of European history, believe it or not, if you can have such a thing, is about is around this era, and so I was interested in some of the history you talked about. Um, the technology, which I hope we can talk about, that that made so much happen. But it was such an interesting look at all the stuff that's happening right now. And that's exactly what the book has. A lot, lots of stuff. So you may feel you may think that you wrote a book about Chopin. But I walked away <laughs> thinking, wow, I just got a, a great slice of, of of European history. And it's just full of great little anecdotes and great little trivial things that are the sort of things about history that I really like. Well, thank you. That's um, that's that's a really lovely, uh, really lovely comment. And I, I tried to make it a short book. It's, a, you know, 160 pages. So I, I crammed in a lot. But it what, what really interested me, and we should talk about the technology because that's such an important part of the story, but was also there was there was such a burst of I mean, Paris in the time that Chopin lived there in the 1850s was known as the capital of the 19th century. And there was so much innovation that was happening in every different aspect. We'll talk about technology, but also in, you know, his lover was Georges Sand, the, um, the French author. And one of his great friends was the, um, was the Marquis de Costine, um, who was a homosexual who actually sort of lived openly as a homosexual in the, um, in the later parts of his, of his life. And so there was a lot of innovation in, in, in social convention as well that um, followed on the heels of the real repression of the Napoleonic years and, and all that. So it was a really remarkable moment in, in the culture. And, um, and that's what really intrigued me about it, were these, these figures. Delacroix is another one as a painter, breaking a lot of rules. Well, these guys, they were rule breakers, the romantics. Um, and I found that really invigorating. Um, some of them were really bloviating rule breakers like Franz Liszt and, and others were more sort of quiet rule breakers like Chopin, who wasn't interested in celebrity. He was interested in his art. And I found the contrast of that really. I mean, I think I think Chopin would really recognize our moment today, actually, where there's, you know, such an enormous amount of emphasis on artists placed on the need to promote yourself and the need to be out there and on social media and giving concerts and touring. Chopin gave something like 30 concerts during his entire career. Franz Liszt gave a thousand in a 10 year period, you know, so I, I think Chopin's <clears throat> decision to retreat and retreat into his art was really, you know, it, it's almost as striking as if, say, Long Long decided, you know what, I'm not going to perform it. I'm going to make my make my way. Um, without all of that stuff. Breaking news, Coldplay has announced that they will no longer be making new music after 2025. Is that right? <laughs> yes, it 2025. is. 2025, that's a long yes. way away. I think they've planned for three more records, but this, could we put that on the same stage as Chopin not playing concerts? I'm being a bit sarcastic, <laughs> but it, it is that sort of, that someone actually wants to 
because music back then we didn't have recordings. So the only way people could hear music was in a home or in a concert hall, or we'll talk about the technology because that fascinates me. Printing technology had changed and printing had become cheaper. So you could make sheet music and sell it more easily and people could play the music at home. Right. So you didn't have to see an artist perform live to be able to hear the music. And I know that in Chopin's time, his work and list as well was so popular that they would sell thousands of copies of sheet music and people would take it home. But could people play well enough at the time to play some of this? Again, I think there's a big difference between Chopin and Liszt, where Liszt could play like 100 miles an hour and Chopin was often more nuanced. But could people play this easily? You as a pianist, how well can you play Chopin after the many years you've played? Well, I certainly can't play all of it. Um, and, and there's a lot of it I'll never be able to play. Um, but, you know, the, the, Chopin was very much against virtuosity. He really, he, it made him, um, in, in, in fact, one of the things, he, he participated in a group project that the um, composer Moschel's put together of all these different compositions in one in one book, and and what struck people about Chopin's was in this 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 production was all about virtuosity, and Chopin's work was so unvirtuosic. Um, yeah, the work is it's very very hard to play, um, but it's I think you know in those days people had you know, they had more time to devote to um, to this. It, it's interesting because what you were saying before, Kirk, made me think that in a way you could you could you could kind of suggest that the printing press was it had certainly the effect of what social media has today because it allowed the distribution of all these works by different composers and different writers of course um to and relatively inexpensively relatively much yeah exactly because every before that everything had to be everything had to be set by hand and then if you had to do a reprint you had to reset it by hand so it, it allowed for the dispersion throughout all of Europe of all of these ideas, musical ideas, literature, um, opera, and, and, and that. And, and so it had the effect in a way of what social media and the Internet has today. This extraordinary, of course, and, and the railroad, too. I think you can't, you know, you have to include that, that as well, because the railroad started getting I think the first railroad in, in, in connecting Paris and Versailles was in like 1837. So the years when Chopin was in Paris. It may have been like social media, but there was no comment section. <laughs> <laughs> Fortunately, but there were newspapers um, I, and very catty ones, too. And very, yeah. There were, but but you I don't think there were letters to the editor back then yet. However, it was not uncommon for people to write an op-ed or something and send it to a newspaper and new newspapers would publish these things. I just want to get back. You're mentioning George Sand and just coincidentally, I've been reading a biography of George Sand recently. Oh, which one? Um, it's a short paperback by, I don't know whom it's in the uh, Gallimard Folio. Yeah, that one, the short one, yeah. because I just bought the two play ad volumes of her novels and I wanted to know more about her. And when you look at that period, I mean, her grandmother bought her from her mother. There were these forced marriages. There were these illegitimate children. Her mother was a prostitute. Her father was the son or or the illegitimate child of the elector of Sa- I mean, all these weird things like a soap opera going on. Yeah. And then she goes to Paris and she wants to write and she has to dress like a man because it's the only way she can circulate alone and go places and, and do things. And 
it made me realize that your book, as Doug's saying, it's about more than Chopin, but what we get is all the context that we don't have about a work of art in the time it was written. That for us right now, you say, hey, Coldplay's got a new album. We know the context, right? We know what the world's like. We know what our attitude toward gender and race is, and we don't know that. And through your book, you managed to, kind of like a funnel, get all these things that go in and distill just around that one piano sonata. Well, thank you. That's really what I set out to do, to make it, to use the sonata as a kind of a springboard to talk about all these different forces, all the forces in Chopin's life, and they all manifest in this in this work, too. And I think you can't divorce, you know, famously, St. Beuve said you can't judge an author's work by their life, but you can't divorce an, uh, an author or a composer's work from their context, from the time. They're influenced by the composers who came before, by the people around them, by their experiences. And I think most people don't know that. We just think classical music is like this monolithic thing, but we don't realize that each little bit comes from a different period, a different country with different ideas. Yep. Yep. That's that's exactly right. I think that's um, and, and that's why we love to read history and why we love to read narrative history. And so Chopin is a combination of his Polish roots and his French, well, he acquired French citizenship later in his life. His father was French. I believe his father didn't allow French to be spoken at home originally. I think I saw this on Wikipedia. So what is there that's Polish in his work and what is there that's French? Well, I mean, I'll give you one. I mean, that's a, that's a very huge subject, but I'll give you one um, one example of what's Polish in his work. And I write about this in um, in the book. Is his scherzo in in B minor, and the piece starts with this in this extraordinarily anguished howl at the beginning, and then after a bit, he takes a pause and he he introduces this classic Polish cradle song called Lulage Jezu, which is a beautiful, beautiful, very um, traditional Christmas carol, before he then goes back into this very stormy um, harmonic region. And so there you have him. He was actually in Vienna when he wrote this piece. Um, but you have him taking, you can imagine his mother singing him this song when he was a, a little boy. And here at this very anguish, this was right after he had left Poland, in 1830, and then there was a revolution that made it impossible for him to go back. Um, and he actually never did go back um, ever in his life to his homeland. So it makes it even more poignant, actually, that this that this is there. But this is, you know, the the the, the infusion of his Polish roots into a into a song. And of course, he wrote in in the in in many of the traditional Polish dance forms, the mazurka and the polonaise. Um, and um, and and so he's he really was very um, there's a there's a wonderful historian, Norman Davies, who gave an interview recently. Um, and he said that 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 Chopin's really is the is the first Polish voice that's audible throughout the world. Um, it's not a language that most of us are taught that we learn. And most of us kind of learn Polish if we learn it in in, in a musical way. We certainly learn, learn it through Chopin. Um, and so it's very much a part of his, a part of his 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 artistic um, life and and work. You mentioned that um, he never went back to Poland, and that made me think he didn't live very long. And maybe if he had lived longer, he might have gone back. 
But he only, he, I don't think he lived to be 40, did he? He was uh, 39, 40 when he died? Yeah, he died. He was born in 1810 and he died in 1839, 1849, sorry. So yeah, and, and he, he did make a trip to Scotland at the very end of his life. Um, and he was very, very ill. And I think he just wasn't, his, his ability, he did, he did make it back to Paris where he died then, you know, months later. I don't remember who said this, but I, I read this someplace. Someone said, imagine if Schubert had lived a normal life. We would look at all of his works and think of it as early Schubert. Imagine what could have come after. And the same with Chopin. What could have come after had he lived another 20 years? Uh, you know, he had been so revolutionary in style, his adoption of the piano, etc. cetera. We, we forget for some of these composers who die young that their work hasn't gone through, let's say, the three phases of Beethoven, not that Beethoven lived to be very old, but that we do identify these three phases. Right. I think that's right. And, I, you know, a, a lot of people that I know say, well, if Chopin were, were living in the, you know, the early 20th century, he would have become a jazz musician. And I think that's, um, I mean, he was very, he pushed a lot of the, I mean, the, the, last, um, the last movement of the Opus 35 Sonata, the one with it, with that's preceded by the Funeral March, is this wild, crazy um, piece that's sort of verging on atonality. And so he's anticipating Schoenberg and he's anticipating jazz musicians. He's just going into a place that that no one really went before. And so I think, yeah, I think it's a really, I mean, it's one of those intriguing questions. What, what, where would he have gone? What would he have done? What, and he probably would have gone back to um, to Poland. Um, maybe he would have gone to Russia too. You know, a lot of in the in that period, you had tons of Pauline Viardot yeah. and Clara Schumann and all these all these artists go list going to to Russia. Yeah, hot spot. So who knows? You know, it's it really is very intriguing. You say something interesting in your book. You say the machines of the Romantics were designed to transform, create, and manipulate human emotion and experience, and that made me think. Well, there's two romantics, aren't there? There's the early romantics, say pre-1830-ish, Beethoven and Schubert and those. And then there's the later romantics. And even though people tend to call the later romantics the ones from the late 19th century. And what I was thinking is the difference between, say, Beethoven and Schubert, who mostly wrote piano sonatas, and Chopin, who mostly wrote short pieces. He only wrote three piano sonatas. And even when you were saying about the movement with the funeral march, you have the funeral march, and then you have a sort of a nocturne, and then you go back to the funeral march. So why was his composition sort of little pieces rather than that romantic sonatic development? Well, you know, he was criticized, um, you know, throughout his life for writing the, the shorter pieces, including by his own his teachers, um, his own sister. Everybody said, you know, you, you make your you make your name by writing opera, by writing, you know, these in these in these huge forms. And for Chopin, he 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 really what he 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 wrote these small jewel like pieces that said what he needed to say. He was incredibly economical. I mean, you get the feeling in Chopin that every single note really matters. Um, he resisted this pressure to compose in these large forms um, because he didn't he didn't need the larger forms in order to say what he what was in his heart. He also, I think, he was in love with the piano. And the piano had such an enormous range, particularly in those it, at that time, the piano was becoming larger. It had greater tonality. There were tremendous variations between the different piano makers. It was like an orchestra in itself. You could use the piano if you were brilliant. 
as an artist, as a composer, you could use the piano as an orchestra. And so, you know, that was one of the things that I found really, um, you know, kind of inspiring about Chopin was that he was, in addition to the, you know, his, his resisting the, the call to the concert stage and the need to, you know, have piano duels like Liszt and Talberg did, he went his own way. And he, 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 all, he heard this chorus of people all saying, you have to write in these big forms. And he didn't. He said, you know, I, I'm, I'm, that's not what I'm doing. Could part of this have been marketing? Because he knew that shorter pieces would be more likely to sell in sheet music because they'd be easier, in quotes, to play than a long sonata. Did Chopin ever express anything about the marketing? I know you read about Victor Hugo and Les Miserables and the whole marketing plan that he established for the book. And Balzac was constantly writing reviews about his own books under fake names. Was Chopin conscious of the fact that he was actually selling music? Well, he was very much because he he was very involved in the selling of his of his of his scores. And there are wonderful vitriolic letters. He had very choice words for people in my previous profession, the publishing profession. And he hated what they, you know, they attached, they attached goofy names to his, to his works, like his preludes. You know, he hated that. Um, I think that was a form of marketing that he, that he spotted right off and found, and it, and it, and it had a, a tin sound to him. Um, I think that, that, that playing concerts was a form of marketing back then, because, you know, the concerts were reviewed and that was a way that people made a name. And so I, you know, I, I have no, I mean, I could think about it a little bit, but I can't think of any instance where, um, where Chopin, you know, tried to, um, to, to generate some kind of, Buzz. Um, you know, of, of publicity. In fact, it made George Sand crazy because, because she, his, his, his people around him tried to get him to, you know, to, to promote himself. And there's one, I can't remember the quote exactly, but, but she says, you know, that so many things make him crazy about, you know, about all this publicity that, that I, that I suggested to him that he should play with without candles or an audience on a dumb keyboard, you know, that that would be sort of Chopin's ideal, you know, was just by himself without anybody without in the darkness with a keyboard that didn't even sound. That's how she, you know, in, in her fit of like, what is your problem? Why are you not um, open to promoting yourself? Yeah. And he just, he wasn't. That's, you know, that's the kind of artist that he, and we have artists like that. You know, we have J.D. Salinger. Sure. We have other, you know, they're very, very rare. And, and that was who he was. So let's talk about the instrument itself. This is the technology part that I find really fascinating. The change in the instrument from the harpsichord to the early pianoforte to now. You had some interesting discoveries going to a museum and playing old pianos and listening to old pianos. And people who listen to music like this today, they hear it on these bright, loud pianos that we have. And it's so different from the piano of that time. Yeah, it's true. I mean, it's it's I my education really, really took place in this remarkable um, uh, uh, collection. It's not a museum because. It's designed for people like me, for concert artists, for musicians, composers to actually play these instruments. They're kept in play playable condition. It's called the Frederick Collection of Historic Pianos, and it's in a tiny little town outside of Boston called Ashburnham, Massachusetts. And mm -hmm. um, it's run by a, a married couple, um, Patricia and, um, and and Mike Frederick. And what they do, they have about 30 different pianos from the 1920s down to the, the late um, 1700s. And wow. they take you going backward in time through the collection and they play the same works on each piano. 
so that you can really hear the differences. And the story that they tell there is that in the, um, the, the, the sort of the heyday of the pianistic uh, development, which was really around the time that Chopin was composing in the early 19th century, um, uh, different countries had different voices. And the people who made pianos in Austria didn't care what the people, the audiences in Paris cared about. Um, they cared about their own audiences. The people in Paris, the makers in Paris didn't care what London audiences wanted to hear. They cared about their own audiences. And so you have these really different um, you know, tonalities and sounds in these, in these, and there were hundreds and hundreds of piano makers all over Europe. And um, Whereas today we only have a half a dozen major piano makers around the world, right? That's right. And 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 what happens? What happened in the, in the industrial revolution? I mean, this happened in in into a lot of different um, uh, products in the industrial revolution. In order to become mass producible and affordable, they kind of got homogenous. They 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 right. made they made things the same way. They made them on machines. They made them you know the soundboards and the, everything was done a different way. And so. Um, the, 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 the extraordinary thing about the Frederick collection is you're like in this United Nations, um, of sound and, and, and Chopin, the, the machinery itself is very different on the different pianos. And so unlike the pianos of today, um, what you play in the right hand can be, can sound completely different from the tonality in the left hand. You can have this rich, sonorous bass and this very kind of sparkling treble and and it really changes the way you hear the music, and um, and so that's what that, that's what and, and Chopin you know he he played on a lot of different kinds of of, of pianos. His favorite was the uh, the Playel, um, but it, it really the the thing that that struck me the most when I when I on my first visit I made many visits to the Frederick Collection is just the how you hear the 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 music differently and how the the story of um, the development of 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 music of composition really has a very intimate connection to the story and the development of the piano. Well, writing music for an instrument with a certain sound means that the composer is writing for that sound, and translate that sound to a Steinway, and it may work, but it's missing something. It's like it's got an accent when it's being played. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. And it also has. I mean, there are some pieces in Chopin. There's a nocturne. I think it's the Opus 48 Nocturne where there's a very intense um, uh, series of octaves in the middle of the piece. And unless you are the a absolutely brilliant technician, a modern technician on a modern Steinway or Yamaha or Busendorf or whatever, it can get really muddy really easily. You hear that same passage played on a, on a historic piano. It's completely different. Those, those issues are not there because the, um, you know, the, the sound is very, is, it's smaller, it's more nuanced because the, so it, it, it really, you can, you can hear it, um, it, it, it requires modern pianists. This is one of the things actually that, that really interested me when I wrote about the Chopin competition on historic instruments, which the Chopin Instrument Institute put on in 2018, I think. Um, in, in addition to their major uh, competition, it's one of the most important in the world, which happens on regular instruments. They did one for the first time on, on historic pianos. And I talked to a lot of the young pianists 
who participated in that um, in that competition. And they talked about how they really had to alter their technique in order to play these older pianos. Things that worked on a modern instrument didn't work. They sounded really harsh, or what Chopin called a pigeon barking. And you know, it, it so. <laughs> So you really there, there's a question of technique and artistry that that really comes to to play in the, using these instruments. I like how you referred to these the difficulties that they would have as issues because they really are <laughs> little problems for modern pianists, aren't they? I mean, how can they possibly know unless they actually hear something played on an older machine how it's supposed to sound? Because without the familiarity. It's like trying to play, you know, balalaika music on a guitar. You can't, you need to know what you're going for. Well, in, in recent decades, we have had a lot more recordings on historical instruments. And I, I personally, I love that. I just pulled up a CD here by Paul Badura-Skoda, where he plays Schubert's B-flat major piano sonata uh, three that. times on a two-CD set. The first one is on an 1826 Conrad Graf Fort piano. The second is a 1923 Bösendorfer. And the third is a 2004 Steinway. And you listen to this work on... The, the piano from the time and then a little bit later and then modern. And you can hear not only how different it is, but how different he's playing it to fit to the different pianos. Wow. Can you send me a link to that? I'd love to, I'd sure. like to buy that. Um, yep. That really, uh, that, that's, that's a great, I mean, the, you can hear a lot of, you're right. A lot of, a lot of recitals, the Fredericks, um, they do a wonderful concert series at a local church, but in the, during the pandemic, they took it online. And so there's a lot of, concerts that they've archived now on their website on their different pianos and um and it really is a it's a way to 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 understand a composer's intention and of course you know all music all the all art it evolves over time and we look at it through we now look at a lot of art through our phones you know and, and we don't have to go to museums anymore and so people are seeing things in 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 different ways and hearing things in different ways but it's so instructive to um to listen to those it sounds a little weird at first you know i think a lot of yeah, people they sound a little tinkly dink yeah right? <laughs> you have to get into the you have to listen a lot and then you you know and and, and also it's about a, it's about a story and so it may not be as aesthetically pleasing as hearing the same work um you know played by murray pariah at carnegie hall but you do enter into this story which is in in part a technical story um, and in fact, you know, the, 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 the story of the piano, it, um, you know, it's not, it doesn't so much coincide with the, the, the development of, you know, any kind of musical genius. It's about, it's about culture, it's about industry, it's about technology, it's about factories. Um, and, and it's also about larger concert halls needing louder pianos. Well, that too. That's right. And that's, and, and, and Chopin, you know, when he went, and, and this was a time when one of, another one of the innovations of that period was the building of these big, of these big concert halls and people started going to concerts and the audiences got bigger and the, and the, and the instrumentation got bigger and the, and the orchestras got bigger. And he had a very, he was criticized for having a very small sound. And that was another reason that he, he left the concert stage. He just kept, people kept criticizing for him, him for his for the, you know, the, the intimacy. He liked to play in, in, in living rooms and salons. Okay, this we could talk for hours about this. It's really oh, yeah. fascinating. And I'm going <laughs> to link in the show notes to the book, obviously. If you want to learn about 
politics and the revolutions going on. See, we, unless we know about history, we don't know that there was a revolution in 1830. In 1848, most of Europe was in revolution. You know, it was just after Napoleon and all that. We, we miss all the context. You talk about the technology, you talk about the people he knew and et cetera. Fascinating book. What are you going to write next? Well, you know, I'm, I'm doing a ton of reading. I've got a couple of ideas that I'm batting around. But at the moment, what I'm really interested in, I'm, I'm reading a lot about Clara Schumann. I think I'm going to write about her. Um, I want to write more about George Sand. I want to write about Margaret Fuller. I, I'm not done with this period. So I'm, I'm, I'm doing an enormous amount of reading. Um, one thing that's, that's hamstringing me to some degree is that I really would love to find a black woman artist of that period to be able to write about in the same way. But I'm 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 making some progress um, because I think it just adds so much depth to to the story. And I'm frankly I you know I've spent a lot of time writing about dead white European males, um, and I, I want to shift that focus somewhat. So so that's that's one thing I'm looking at. Um, and then just, you know, a couple other ideas of, about nature and, and um, photography and, you know, various other things. So I, 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 I'm, I'm now, I, I, I may have mentioned this to you, Kirk, I'm, I'm in a sort of a strange sejour of myself now because my partner was ill and I'm in a kind of a caretaking mode, which is its own, um, you know, wonderful project. Um, but it has somewhat constrained my my activities and time. So I'm, I'm and that's an interesting, since, you know, when you... When you read about when you read about great composers, you often read about um, you know the, the the constrictions they put on themselves, the limitations they put on their music, the the boundaries that they set. And so I've had some artificial boundaries put on me, which has made it a kind of interesting creative moment, even though it's had as its well challenges. as COVID putting artificial boundaries on everyone. Well, and then there's COVID too. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And 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 so it's it's a really interesting period. That there's there's a lot of time to read. And I'm, I've just ordered, you know, tons of books I've got. We, we can see the bookshelves behind yeah, you that, that right. are actually larger than mine. And I have They're lots bursting. of books. Yeah. This, in my effort to find a, a woman of color, I found this interesting. Maria Stewart, uh, America's first black woman political writer who's from the in the in the early 19th century. And then there's um, Mary Edmonia Lewis who was an artist in the a little bit later than my period, but also fascinating. So I'm, I'm, I'm just taking this opportunity to try to just, you know, read and inquire and, and then see what, uh, kind of see what happens. Okay. Annie Clafars, thank you very much for joining us. The book is Chasing Chopin, and there'll be links in the show notes. Thank you. Always a joy to talk with you fellows. This episode of The Next Track is going to be restreamed on Uncertain.fm on Sunday, January 9th and Sunday, January 16th at 10 a.m. Eastern U.S. time. We get a full hour, so we, uh, we pack in a little bit more music. That is Uncertain.fm on Sundays at 10 a.m. We'll be playing music that we talk about here, like, for instance, now. Kirk's next track pick. Okay, my next track pick, there is a bit of a coincidental overlap with our guest because she lives up on the Hudson River near Woodstock. And this is about a band who lived up near Woodstock for a while in a house called Big Pink. It's a documentary called Once We Were Brothers, Robbie Robertson and the Band. We all know who the band was, right? They were the band. And, you know, I originally thought, like, what band would name themselves the band? And it turns out that when they were hanging out up in Woodstock, people just, they didn't have a name. They were just in this house playing music and everyone would just call them the band. And they decided that was their name. 
So we know the band. They were Dylan's backing band. Before that, they were the backing band for Ronnie Hawkins. They were all Canadian except for Levon Helm. And they're all dead except for Robbie Robertson and Garth Hudson, who's the keyboard player. Now, this documentary is entitled, I'm going to repeat it, Once We Were Brothers, Robbie Robertson and the Band. So it is the band seen by Robbie Robertson. There are no interviews with Garth Hudson. There are only a couple of voice overs from the other members previously. There are a lot of photos, contemporaneous photos and films of them, particularly in Woodstock. What I find really interesting is the band dissolved in 1975. Their famous last waltz concert was Thanksgiving 1975. So for me, I didn't really know them until that movie came out. And I didn't realize how big they were, how popular they were. They had an immense popularity, even though they only had a few albums. This documentary portrays starting with Robbie Robertson when he was growing up, and then he started playing with um, the Hawks. He wrote his first songs that were recorded by Ronnie Hawkins when he was 15 years old, and he was just incredibly prolific, talented musician, etc. And it tells the story as the band goes there and they go with Dylan, they do the basement tapes, and then people get into alcohol and drugs, and there's car accidents and people getting hurt. And then it just all goes downhill from there. And Robbie Robertson seems quite happy with his life, filmed in this space with guitars around or in this big rehearsal room and all this. And you kind of think that the band was just Robbie Robertson and you kind of forget about the others. So it's an interesting documentary, but it's really just one point of view. And I would have liked to have more ideas of what the other well, late musicians of the band might have thought about all this. Doug, what's yours? I like the funk. I like to listen to the funk music. And I found a really interesting combo that does the funk. They are the Delvon Lamar organ trio, which consists of Delvon Lamar on organ and two other guys, a drummer and a guitar player. And I was really surprised by how great they sound. Now, I like, I like, Guys who play the B, you know, the Hammond B3, I like Jimmy Smith and I like Booker T and stuff like that. But those, those guys, they play melodically. Delvon Lamar, they play funkily. Um, there's, there's an exactness to the funk. Uh, it even sounds like they're imitating like electronica because there are things that, that repeat that sound exactly like they just sounded. But it's three guys just, pumping this stuff out. This is a really terrific record. I haven't heard all of it yet. I've only heard a couple of the tracks, but I'm, I'm really enjoying it because it's this just this nice, clean, funky Hammond B3 organ sound. Guitar player is absolutely awesome. I wish I knew his name. I didn't have time to look it up, but I Told You So is the name of this album. They also have another album from 2018. This one is from 2021. It's more or less all the same sort of stuff. Just great to throw on and it's just got that great, nice, chunky sound that I really like. The chunky funk. Totally into it. Anyway, the Delvon Lamar organ trio, I Told You So, is my next track. This was episode number 226 of the next track. Thanks for listening. You can start or join a conversation in the comments section of this episode's show page at our website. You'll also find links to some of the things we talked about in the show notes for this episode. Just visit thenexttrack.com. You can follow us on Twitter at NextTrackCast. And don't forget to support The Next Track by making regular donations via Patreon. We're ad-free and self-sustaining, so your support is what keeps us going. Visit patreon.com slash thenexttrack. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks again. We'll talk to you next time. <laughs>